Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and double exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 78, Creativity in Business, Pixar's Success and Lessons for Tabletop Publishing. Recorded at Metatopia 2015, presented by Cam Banks and Jeff Tidball. So we're, we're, we're going to talk about uh, Pixar as an interesting model for how to do, how to conduct a good creative business. I am super interested in conducting a good creative business because I've managed creative businesses like since for my whole career. Do um, we want to like, sort of more circularize this so we can have people raising the Yes. It's such a small group that if one person sits like five feet back, it's like a year. And I will pick up the all the time. Just give me a second. Yeah. Maybe you can give a picture. Yeah. It's all right. So you can teach it. I'm shaking. So one of the things I do is read business books, and a lot of them are awful, and I try not to read those. Um, but seminal stuff like uh, Jim Collins's work, Good to Great. Have any of you guys read or familiar with that? There's a, a canon of these phenomenally good business books that have sold millions and millions of copies, but none of them are super relevant to creative businesses. And so I was excited to come across this book that Ed Catmull wrote, who is the president of Pixar that is like part business book but is entirely relevant to the business of managing and running creative companies. It's also kind of a history fits out while you're doing it too. Right. So I guess first and foremost, Cam and I would both recommend this book and we think that it's super relevant reading for anybody who's trying to operate a creative organization and do great work because it's both about it's about running a great creative organization in service of producing great creative things. The goal is not to become like a Kindle novel factory that makes the most money in two and a half hours a day. But, like, it it is pretty much there is no arguing with the fact that Pixar is a factory for not, like, just producing some profitable stuff, but producing phenomenally good feature films and with a nigh unassailable track record of doing it, right? They just, flops do not come out from there. There are more phenomenally successful and then like regularly successful, but really even the regularly successful stuff does not come out of there. So I think that it's a good place to look at for how how should a creative business be managed, how did they sort that out, how can which of those lessons can we bring back in our case to Atlas Games, um, but you know, to wherever else, to whatever business of any size. So that's why we think this is yep. Creativity Inc. What do you think? What do I think? I think that well, what the, the book uh, inspired me to, to understand is that there's a, there's obviously many ways to manage people who are creatives and uh, who have a desire to produce great things, but we've often had this idea that you, know, you have to uh, follow certain kind of managerial plans in order to make business work and make them profitable and so on. And a lot of them ignore the fact that creative people don't work in the same way as perhaps, you know, a series of comes and other uh, people do it. Um, my favorite thing about this book and the attitude that it has in it is that he likes to, um, I think the, the phrase was uh, protect the new. Um, he likes to take risks. He acknowledges that you have to do that in order to make sure you, you know, get things that are good. Um, you can't just sort of say, okay, we've already figured out our, our nice, safe little place of things and we'll keep churning it out. Right? He doesn't stand, they don't stand for anything on um, early, uh, the, the history of Pixar had some um, uh, hiccups, like just in terms of who the owning it and what was done, and people coming in trying to tell them how to do things. And often they would just push back until they were going their way by saying, No, we have some very smart people, they know what they're doing, and we're just going to help them do that stuff. 
Crazy story, Pixar was originally a company that produced computer hardware for making animation. Yeah. What they wanted to do when they were first when they were younger was like, we really want to make a movie. But since that never works, let's make some computers and make them sell their hardware to, to people. And various companies would, would make those things. Uh, but they made short films to test out this stuff and to demonstrate these this hardware to these companies. Uh, and in the end, they realized that it was more fun making the short films, and so they started to do it all the time. Um, the people they brought on uh, over time became part of what uh, I think Ed calls his brain trust. And that was another thing I think I took from it. In general, the idea is that um, it, the, there are several things I think that he points out which all kind of point back to the idea that you don't want to play it safe uh, necessarily, otherwise you will never achieve you know, the kind of things you want. Uh, and it's not a problem to do that. It's not a problem to fail. Um, uh, what's the, the line? Although at a certain point. Yes, yes, okay. Let's, so, pull back let's go to 30,000 feet quick. Also, I'm Jeff Tidball, and this is Cam Banks, and we are both at Atlas Games. Sorry. Order of operations. I am. Um, we're creative people. We don't do anything in <laughs> That's right. We are inverting the paradigm. I read that in a business book. Fat talk um, pyramid goes down. There's a lot of stuff in that book. About half of the book is the history of Pixar, and that's kind of interesting. That's not the most interesting part to me, but it's useful background for this stuff. In terms of stuff that I think would be super fruitful for us to talk about today, there are kind of four general blobs. Yep. One of them is... Uh, putting together an excellent team that can help you uh, hone ideas. Another one is this idea that Cam was alluding to of um, protecting new ideas and allowing them to fail long enough to get to a good place. No a grand creative idea springs fully formed. And so the only way you can get to great ideas is to protect the failing ideas for long enough that your brain trust of super smart people can make them great. Yep. So those two ideas sort of work together, but also they are sort of separate. You will not assemble a brain trust of people who will go to a corporate retreat and come back with the golden idea. No. Um, I think that another thing, and this is the thing that I think maybe distinguishes Pixar the most from other places that make feature films is that they plan longer especially in the movie business when you move a script into actual production right when you have got set decorators and you have got people buying film stock and you're renting equipment like you're just setting money on fire every day all of that goes on because it's so phenomenally expensive and so you wind up with things like a movie in production and you'll get a screenwriter who's hired for $100,000 a week because the script's not done but it's worse to wait, because you've hired all these people, and they're all sitting around, and you can't shoot anything until they've got a script, so dumb decisions begin to be made because it hasn't been planned for long enough. And so one of the things that Pixar does is they just develop forever until they believe that it's well and truly ready to go, and then at that time begin to bring in animators and the resources that actually produce the movie. So planning longer and doing more iterations of planning documents is something that we started to do at Atlas that I think has been yeah. extremely successful, right? Yeah. Instead of coming up with a, a vague idea for a product in an email and then hiring somebody to write it. Yeah, and then doing like a Kickstarter before you've even finished anything. Uh, I mean, that's the thing, with the idea that you have done enough of the work uh, ahead of time that you, we are all very happy with what we've got. And so no one's going to be on the wrong page when we start um, producing it, right? If you start to making this thing and someone goes, wait a second, I thought the logo was going to be green instead of red, and you can say, no, we, we all decided on the green logo, and we all agreed on that, and you'll probably await that day, right? The, 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 the sort of thing that I'm hoping to sort of see us come up with in the end for things like RPGs production is that we have a sort of a Bible of about 30 pages or more of, of information, concepts, stuff, uh, rules that we figured out everything else is already kind of like there in a package and if I had to I could hand it to a developer or to a writer or to an artist or someone else to say everything you need isn't here if there's anything else you need to talk about we can have a conversation 
but I will feel confident that I'm giving them a whole lot of material. And that would only come after having worked through the right. program. Right, and these 30 pages are not some shit you came up with last weekend. Right, right. This is the sixth iteration of a document that was once 12 pages that was alpha-tested at Metatopia that we rewrote for the next three months because we talked about it a lot and figured yeah. out what were the problems. And our brain trust of 10 different people, some of whom are employees and some of whom are in other parts of the game industry. Yeah. Like we went around about this a lot. And, and the idea is that that ultimately saves money. Yes. Yeah. Even if you had to put some money into it at a point, it's a whole lot less than the money of going out and sort of like uh, and paying a whole ton of artwork and then going, you know what, we need to change that because we didn't quite get it right. So what can we do again? Right, right. The math on that is easy. To attend Metatopia costs hundreds of dollars. To hire a writer to write 200,000 words costs many thousands of dollars. And so you can come here and workshop the creative brief like for a decade at less expense than hiring somebody to write it alone in their corner without any other kind of feedback. And yeah. so I think that that ultimately makes a lot of sense. Um, so planning longer, making mistakes, and knowing that mistakes will be made, and having a, a net that gives feedback based on those mistakes that improves products at the right time in the cycle. Yeah. The, the failure thing is really important, right? I think what happens to people who are doing creative work is that they, they want to get perfect. Uh, and if they screw up something, they're like, oh my god, if this is all this, I'm never going to get it right. Um, Andrew Stanton, uh, one of the people at uh, Pixar, uh, believes that you should fail early and fail off. He's the director of Up, I think. Um, he was a huge fan of it. Like, he, he, the thing was going wrong within like a few weeks of, of starting. It's like, what's going wrong? We need to, we need to, this, this isn't working out right because we haven't uh, screwed up yet, right? Um, we haven't identified the problems with this thing right. yet. In fact, what was the movie? Was Toy Story? Toy Story 3, three or 2. 2? One of the Toy Story movies, they were all like really worried at the end of it after Harry done the whole thing. There was no massive big collapse halfway through. There was no big gigantic crisis. They're like, I'm not sure if this is actually any good. We should be really worried what's going to happen next. And there wasn't anything. So that was kind of an exception that proved the rule. But every other sort of production they had, early on they had these sort of crashes, like the writer quits, the director has to go, they have to rewrite the entire thing. Um, but they'd never do it, uh, really, and, and for, for, you know, while the huge money's being spent. It's all done up, up front, um, if, they can, if they can do it. Um, and I'm a big fan of this idea that we start doing this more often with our stuff. Um, we send, tend to go half-assed into things uh, because we have failed to you know, give ourselves enough time to let these things develop. We've, sort of, we believe we should make a game from zero to six months and put it out as soon as we can. We should, we should hit Gen Con, we should do this stuff. And we have uh, kind of created these sorts of limits which we don't necessarily have to have. Um, and because we have to hit those things, we try to cut corners in other ways. And often we're small companies, right? Yes. So it's hard to assemble a group of large and diverse opinions, mm -hmm. especially ones that trust you and that you trust well enough to say, you know, maybe that idea, mm, yeah, perhaps not so much, or things like that. So that's that's a roadblock for companies Atlas's size and like for for independent small creators. Um, it it is non-trivial to assemble that. I think though, trust. the cool part is, right, uh, maybe 10 years ago even, this would have been really difficult to do unless you had uh, addressed a large part of Gen Con or, or somewhere like that and said, hey everybody, who's up for this? Or, or posted a sign, please come to our room, we want to talk about it. Now I can grab people on Google Plus or Twitter and say, like, hey, do you have five minutes I can talk to you about a thing I want to do? And send some emails out, and, uh, start a Slack channel and all that kind of stuff. And eventually you had the group. Uh, which may not be the one you end up with at the end, maybe to go through several iterations of the brain trust, people might drop out. But it, it's easier now than it was before, uh, even for a small company, to start getting people uh, by reaching out to uh, the community as a whole in a way that seems more organic and more useful. So. so what questions or challenges are you guys hoping to answer or resolve by attending a thing such as this? I guess uh, my biggest thing uh, has been I'm interested in, in producing games, but I always feel this sort of need to rush, like what you were just talking about. Like there's this 
expectation that a game is going to take a certain amount of time to come out, yeah. and that's it. And then, you know, if you, especially if you take it to Kickstarter, you set a deadline for it, and you say it's going to come out at this point, uh, there's always this feeling that you're under the gun, even if you find things, for example, that you need to take back to, to brass text. Uh, we had a situation with Kickstarter right now that I'm, you know, just working on. We had to go back through and give another edit, and we, we said, okay, do we do that, or we do, do we put out a, a more inferior product? Um, the question then is, I guess, is like, I'm concerned about managing expectations with the public, and that's often what gets me nervous and gives me mm. heart palpitations and anxiety. So, I guess what the question is is like, how do you feel? How do you present that in a public face to sort of say, no, I'm taking my time because I want to do better? And how is that, have you done that before? Uh, well, I mean, to be honest, I, I've been posting on Google Plus about stuff about Pillar of Fire for the past you know, three, four months, just saying sad things. Here's what I'm doing right now. I changed my mind. I'm doing something else. Here's what else. I mean, like, it's not like I'm hiding anything. But the internal budget, the internal workings, and the, and the actual document itself, that's not out there for anyone to see because we want to keep going through it with people that we want to uh, talk to. Um, Kickstarter will be eventually part of this this, uh, this Bible, right? I mean, we'll have some sort of budget for the Kickstarter. I mean, plan is to have this sort of information in such a way that we can roll out the things later on without having any misfires because we've had those misfires early on. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I pass a budget around and Jeff's like, I don't know what this line is for. It says something about donuts. And I'm like, oh crap, that's right, I was falling asleep. Jeff has found my donut. <laughs> but I mean, the, the part of it, which is public and how long it's taken, um, there are people who, who will drop uh, an idea on, on uh, a team, and then a year later, people find out that that idea is, has been brewing this whole time. And then you start telling people, we're working on a thing, and when you say, well, how long is this going to in the works? A year? How come no one heard about it? Because why did you need to, right? Um, if you, this happens all the time with game companies and licenses. They grab a license, sign a document, fantastic, we've got the license for, you know, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We're making this game, and then like about two years later, we have the game, and everyone's like, okay, yeah, whatever, it's taking forever. There are points at which you just decide, you know, until we're actually ready for prime time, a discussion about it for the actual nuts and bolts of it, there's no reason to sort of go out there and, and, and promise something right now because we haven't even made ourselves confident about what we want to do. Um, I think it's maybe... Yeah, I think that it, it... So it sounds like part of your situation is that this is a project that's been kickstarted. This particular thing is something yes. that's been kickstarted already. And that, it, it sounds like you're already in the corner in that case. Yeah. I think that what, what sort of this Pixar blueprint would say is that better it should be much more fully developed before it even goes before to Kickstarter. Like yeah. Kickstarter is the equivalent of movie production. And so better that it should go around the bend right. as many times as it needs to and then to Kickstarter so that you've already kind of done all of your failing. Although I don't know if that's, if, if like re-editing text is the issue. Yeah, I don't know that that's something you can foresee. Yeah. But I think in part you right there, um, is, is the lesson is to a certain extent that whatever pressure that you feel to rush, like it, I, it sounds glib to just say ignore that, but, or, or maybe like just do what you can to deflate that inside yourself because really there's not hopefully no one here is going to succeed or fail in life based on one creative project and so the urgency is almost always less than it seems I am that's not a useful story um, <laughs> I am not immune to that urgency right right um, and make myself dumbass decisions based on this idea that it has to like go now and be fast and yeah. and I, I guess I just try to return to stuff like this and reread this book or think about with the, the, the part of the reason to organize principles I guess about how you want to operate is then that you can revisit them and be like okay mountain pose I agreed that I would not rush the stuff I feel like I'm rushing this stuff. Maybe I should step back from that. I, I, yeah. and, if, and if you've got a creative brain trust of people, you can all kind of remind each other of yeah. that, too. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely don't feel pressured on Polarify right now, which is good. 
but eventually I will need to be. But I'm lucky that I've had to work on it in my Yeah, well, um, you know, I help my day job. I help a lot of small businesses uh, do things, but it's always been kind of my experience. A lot of times when you're in your business, it's almost like your house is on fire and you're just trying to control it. So, using the examples that you're talking about for that long-term plan, obviously, some folks right now that aren't working in that uh, aren't working from that assumption, that paradigm. Obviously, can't just all of a sudden take the thing they're committed to or financially on the hook for and change that to it. So, what do you guys think about as like a modeling to transition from the current running around as a in the fire brigade, transitioning to this long term as you move forward? Because you've got some demands, like here, let's see, Kickstarter's already funded. You do currently have some demands. There are a couple things that come up on my head. Um, there is at least. It's at least worth considering whether you want to sort of uh, say, okay, we want to shift the cold price a bit on something. Um, if you're honest and open about something like that, you might say, okay, here, we get this major big deal, right? Uh, we need to do this thing. It's going to take six more months to do it than we thought. I know we're running around like crazy now, but you know, if you are a stakeholder of this for some reason, um, we want to present you with an alternative proposal for rollout, which is going to take six months later, and then we'll start working on that, right? And that's when you start saying, okay, that's what we're doing. Our new thing is, is going to be a different thing. Um, if you promise dates for printers and distributors and everything else, it's, it's not impossible to sort of like, change those, but you have to be really honest with people and say, here's what happened, right? We've decided that we could either make a crappy thing in two weeks, or we could make a really good thing in six months. Is that okay? We resubmit, resubmit, we do that stuff. Um, there's some things you can't change because you've got people who are not waiting for money or like paying me now because I, I did these things and now I want to pay for it. Um, in those cases, you just have to kind of get through that, I guess, first. And then while you're doing that immediate short term thing, start working on your long term plans or some other project that comes in. Here's two things that I think I would do to try to make that transition. And the first one I think would be is to try to recruit more allies. Um, one of the things that has been extremely successful for me across many different projects over the last year is I hired an assistant. And that's, obviously not everybody can just go out and use money to solve that problem, but you can also recruit, like if you sit down for an afternoon and make a list of people who might be inclined to help you out because they're family or because you have similar creative goals or, or for whatever reason, like just sit down and who are the people who might be inclined to help me and are there ways that can help me like that they will like that will be rewarding for them or where I can help them out on something or where them helping me out is so trivial that why would they not do that? So Save their life for them. When you save their life, then that's they are right. But, but <coughs> often, often if you step back very briefly from putting out fire mode, there might be people who can help you out. And then the other thing that I would do is institute an immediate moratorium on more promises. Mm -hmm. And not to say that you will never make any more promises, but like maybe the next quarter, for the next three months, all the people working on this project, we agree that no promise will be made until we think about it for 24 hours. And then you don't even have to be an asshole when somebody like calls you up and says, well, you ship me the thing by X. You can say like, well, we have agreed that we will not make any decisions on more than 24 hours. So we're going to think about that, and I'll tell you tomorrow about that. And even then, if, you're, if you've agreed to that with all of your allies on this project, then you can like shift the blame out to the group, maybe even. And then in the second quarter, maybe you're like, we don't make any promises until a week has passed. And then hopefully over time, you can sort of back yourself out of... Because the, the treadmill is sort of, of cascading promises right. that you don't quite have time for to fulfill. Another thing to, that I think helps to be aware of is that everything takes between three and eight times as long as you think. That's my favorite quote. Like, and I was like, no, it doesn't. And then, uh, Track your time, it does. Seven weeks later, I'm like, see it. <laughs> Creativity, it does. And, and um, engineering, it's 40%. <laughs> that was the rule of thumb. 40% longer? 40%. Always budget 40% extra in everything. I mean, I, I think the, the hardest thing for me when, when trying to adapt to this meeting was trying to be less uh, sanity about uh, having to have things done really quick, right? Um, when you don't suddenly uh, measure your own self-worth by how fast you can get something done, you feel a whole lot better about your ability to do things and you have confidence to go way out. 
like I don't that personally think it's absolutely true. Um, at least for someone like me who used to run around with, with my head cut off all the time. I was constantly constant during the putting out fires and whatever else. Um, I was lucky that the Atlas sort of has sort of a safe harbor in some ways of like, you know, slow down, we don't need to have this tomorrow. Um, without saying we will never do it because we'll working on it forever and it'll be four years after Kickstarter and we still haven't got it. Uh, we don't have that kind of like fairy mode, but I think we at least don't have the, uh, the, the sort of panic urgency that starts making everyone stressed out. Right, so we're protected by a deep catalog and some profitable tent poles, but I think you can build similar tent poles into your life like by not quitting your day job or whatever it is right that that protects your life from the sense that this Kickstarter project I'm doing must succeed to X level or I will not be able to eat in May and that's I guess related to what my real dilemma is is that when you have an entire indie group that's relying on those tent poles and have external stresses yeah how do you maintain that level of sort of creative spark? Or, or even, not even spark, just drive. Because oftentimes, you've got maybe 50% of your, at least in this, you know, looking around, age group, you've got 50% of the people who already have like family, like family, like they're starting families, and they're, they're constantly phasing in and out of that project. And so with the... the if they have a day job and a family, yeah, um, yeah. the idea that like, we're just going to work on this on weekends. Suddenly, your group of like six people is three to two people, and it's constantly shifting from here. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, how do we how do we manage that team? That's very difficult. Right on. Well, so one of the nice things about that larger group is you have six different opinions when you need them, even if only two or three of them are actively pushing the project forward at a time. And I guess hopefully you can you can amongst the group of you logistics out who's going to be able to work on what and when. Um, is there a specific example of like something that gets held back? Are you all like working on different parts, and so the one guy who can do graphic design has to go care for his dog for this there's six some, months, or there, like there are some diverse skills mm-hmm. um, and, and, and various chemistries that work here. Um, our uh, a few years ago, our, our artistic um, uh, director passed away. So no one's filled in that, that mm-hmm. role because when you're just a small indie group, yeah. uh, it's hard to just be like, oh, yes, I know someone, and, and just pull them into the project. Um, and then our lead writer, his, his wife has a chronic illness, and he has a new job that demands higher hours, and so he's putting in probably only like one day a month because this, these are, this is something we don't decide. Right on. So, right, I mean, that sounds like a situation where that person can step back into being one of the people who critiques what exists but is not someone who pushes it forward and hopefully that person is not like it may not move forward without my yeah. full involvement because oh, yeah. that's that's yeah. there's actually like, there's, that's an attitude that's toxic to your project so luckily we're all sane on that regard it's just right. picking up the, picking up the people who we've sort of shed as far as that momentum we haven't and that's one of the things that they talk about at Pixar is, is making sure that everyone that you allow into your brain trust is worthy to be there and is supportive in a positive way of the group's goals of making great stuff. I like the fact that Pixar uh, um, doesn't seem to want to champion people's specific egos, right? It's like no one, even even whole projects have shifted and, and out, and um, they, they don't want to make things like miserable, but it's like, you know, we can't, you're not doing this anymore because it's just it's working. Uh, they find something else that person to go ahead and do it, and then they move to someone who can do it. And um, if you have enough, uh, Confidence in your indie group, as you're saying, that, that, that you should get it be flexible. Then the one person who's like, I'm a lead fighter, uh, won't feel like, all right, I'm a failure to step back. You know, I, 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 I totally suck at this, and therefore um, I should feel bad about myself. But instead of go, cool, we're, we're going to be able to do it, especially if I just go over here and do this, and my time is better spent critiquing whatever's happening. Right? And also, if you had some kind of, uh, like I said, some sort of creative brief Bible thing anyway, then it makes it easy, even easier for someone else to sort of step in and say, well, it looks like we need to do more work here, but I've got the information. Right. Where I feel a little bit stuck is um, because of the, the writers, like, uh, this is chronic illness, his wife's chronic illness, 
his budget is very, very slim on this. And we feel like we've exhausted our personal network of people who are willing to just work on this project until we're ready to run and publish. So anyone else is going to be someone that we're actually hiring, just out of ethical and realistic concerns. You know? And so the amount of people that we can bring on at once, right now I'm just I'm slowly hiring artists and sure. turning in like turning out contract work on a very slow basis. Well, and maybe it's just slow. Right, yeah. maybe it has to move slowly now, and if you have avoided making any promises to anybody outside your group about when it's going to exist, then that's not great, but hopefully it's cool, or it's as good as it can be. We've learned enough from real-world examples that we're not, we're not pushing anything. We're not making until, far west. Until it's an actual product, until it's like basically something that you can just hand to someone. Sure. I guess the subject. I'll talk to you about I have two artists, and they're both very talented people, um, but they're, they're professional artists. Or one's a professional graphic designer, the other's a professional illustrator. So it's, it's, it's essentially, I get them for maybe like one month out of the year. Depending on, I don't know when that month's going to be. I think you probably need to try to do other people to be to, to help you out with yes. this. Um, and that, that, like I said, that, that can sometimes build into a group that's quite well teleprinted. Uh, it's like a, oh, Changing our dynamic, or we, we haven't managed to succeed with the ability to hire somebody else or get somebody else. Where in fact, we should do something like that. We're recognizing the need to go ahead and do it. Awesome. Let's do it. Two things that have worked well for me in recent years with recruiting more employees, allies, or whatever for a given project is to um, just put a call out. Like, workshop around a description of what it is you need and just put it on your website somewhere and promote to an entire world that you and for somebody to join this project who has skills in the vague universe of A, B, and C and we are a collection of people like this and we care about this stuff and anybody who is like that or, or anybody who cares about that stuff we would be interested in talking to about joining this group and you would be surprised perhaps at how many people are out there in the world who are looking for an opportunity like that that you don't know already. Yeah, my strategy right now is to just completely shift gears. You're like, okay, so we have two or three people. What can we do with just two or three yeah. people? Shifting sure, we do that for sure. Like, we've got, we've got intellectual property we can use. Yeah. Let's switch to a card game until we can push the role that game. That's a good Sure. Yeah. We've got a fantastic game for this. Yes, we did not know. Uh, Kyla works at Atlas. We did not know Kyla. If we had just hired people that we know, that would have been a terrible opportunity lost. I saw the job description on the Facebook page. But but Facebook obviously has some uh, redeeming value. It got my game dev job Craigslist. It, it pays to have an extremely good idea about what you're looking for and be able to communicate that well and then to have an understanding of what that person looks like when their like materials, their email comes back, or their resume, or their mm -hmm. sample of work, or whatever. And it takes some experience at decoding that stuff to to identify a good match. But like that's a skill, like all the other skills you can learn that. Yeah, I think my problem is that I can't imagine myself being recruited into that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. um, not just be out of like pure ego, just being like, well, you know, I'm, I'm someone who values my time and is not, is, is somewhat risk adverse, even though I'm very entrepreneurial. Sure. It's a strange tension. Um, and so I'm not the kind of person to be like chasing those leads until I made an actual connection. And so I, it, it, it seems unlikely to me that I, I'm going to get or, or even recognize that kind of thing if I just send that alarm. Sure. Another thing you can do, if there is any money available for it at all, is to hire an intern for a quarter. Um, and, and like I suppose, free internships exist still, and that I think is sort of bullshit. But because um, that's the work for exposure or whatever. But um, many people who are in the process of earning degrees like will have to work a part-time job anyway. And if you can put to scrape together enough money to pay somebody 10 bucks an hour for 10 hours a week for 12 weeks of a quarter, you will get some useful stuff done. 
you will be able to actually hold them accountable because you're paying them money to do a specific thing that you said what it was. Right. They're learning something useful, have something useful to put on their resume, which is what they want out of the whole thing. And like, I realize that that is a non-trivial amount of money, but it's also not a huge amount of not money. Not a huge amount at all. So I think that that is, and, and I would recruit a person like that in exactly the same way. Like here is 500 words about the skills that we are looking for. Um, and, and that will actually give you practice in decoding resumes to find out the things people say about themselves, what that actually means, especially in terms of what, what you need. And, and the nice thing about internships is if it doesn't work out, like it's sunsetted already. You don't have to have a, a difficult conversation with someone at the end of the quarter. Like if, you, if it's not working out, if you're not feeling it, you can just be like, well, your internship's up. It's been great. Have a nice out. Yeah. What else? Any other questions? Or... I, I don't know if this is a question, but this was an issue that I had reading the book. Um, all of the qualities that they described as to what would make you a good brain trust member or a good creative employee in general, I feel are, well, not only was the brain trust all originally male, but all of those categories are things that I feel have women are socialized not to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when they switch to talking about producing, uh, suddenly now all the examples are female, um, and all of the qualities in being a good producer are, you know, oh, adaptability, communication, yeah, finding middle ground. Nurture. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a question. It was just there something are, there I There are actually a bunch of women on the very first that I think were in there, but they were not originally there, right? I mean, they, they had to bring them in. And I think uh, often what happened was they, they accessed them and realized, we need to get more women doing, like, directors. We need to get more women who come in here and be in charge of stuff. Um, in the RPG line of work, uh, the, the traditional thing is, like, you've got these male designers, but there's female editors, and you often have like, you know, other people who do stuff, administrative for women. And that's just like, that's how it is. I mean, that we're shaking it up a lot lately. And for the past few years, we've been trying very hard to do that. Um, but it's still kind of a, it is very much a normative, right? I mean, it's like, you know, we want you to be uh, super focused and super uh, confident, aggressive, and always think. Candor. Right. Uh, debate. Disagreement. Right. As I was saying, is I, I haven't read the book yet, but I assume the ideas of the brain trust is where ideas clash almost like, yeah. not violently, that's, but like. Well, so that's one of the things actually about the way that they describe their brain trust working is that it was not a violent clashing alpha context for the most part. Right. Except when it was Steve Jobs. Yeah, well, right. He was But he was kicked out of those meetings eventually, yeah. Yeah. right? Like he was disinvited they, from. They told him not to come anymore. Or, or, or he stopped coming because he realized he was doing that. Yeah, I can't remember. I think he was never allowed. But yeah. So like that uh, smart choice. Uh, <laughs> like I mean, you might say I don't want to bring the alpha male into this group. Like if you have a person that if you work with is extremely uh, vocal or in your community at large, you know, who's got I have ideas, I have fixes, I have everything in my way is great. That's not really the person I would like to have right across, right? I want to have diversity points. I want to have people who can challenge me by saying, uh, that's great, but you just described something that, that is purely like, you know, white, cis-hit, male-oriented. Um, I want different uh, points of view. And so for the very first of color of fire, I want to reach out again. But I don't think that um, we can just uh, dismiss that complaint, right? I think we, we really need to sort of allow ourselves to, to realize that, you know, um, if you put women or people of color into a position and say, and now we demand you to do these things. You also have to let them do that. Right? You shouldn't be surprised when someone is that kind of, you know, being very vocal, being very aggressive and saying, Not no. just let, but like encourage. Right, right. Do it, but you know, yell back at me if you have to. Which requires a whole lot of, especially men in that line of work, who are a certain age, that, uh, that is hard for them to do. Right? You don't want to get yelled at by people who aren't also white guys. Even if you don't consciously think that's a thing you're doing, it's certainly go home and say, oh, man. Hollywood creative culture is a gender shit show. Yeah, yeah. It's not, I mean, if you look at the, the directors that work mm -hmm. um, and the, uh, what, 
the entire creative culture there is completely toxic. I feel like it's gotten worse too. Like just looking at the statistics. Could be. I feel like if you were hiring people just based on the qualities that they espouse in this book, you'd hire men nine times out of ten. Yeah. Interesting. That's actually where you I've had performance reviews, you know, where I'm told I'm you know, abrasive or whatever, and that's I've learned not to What's try. The, yeah. 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 There was a whole uh, there was a whole article about uh, uh, the word bossy. Yeah. yeah. And how we have totally gendered that. Like, there's no there's no bossy guy, right? There's only bossy women. Um, you don't. No one's ever told me that I'm bossy. So bossy guy is an asshole. Right, if right. I can, if I can comment on that, it's actually yeah. funny when I when I started working in, in RPGs, especially, I started tailoring the way that I spoke mm-hmm. to speak to men more and to speak in a more aggressive fashion. I learned to cut the words "um" out more often and to speak more directly. Well, the people I actually got the most pushback from were actually women, yeah. who were saying that I was speaking in a way that's too aggressive. Right. Like and aggressive performance. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I would be. I was told, "Can't you tone it down? Can't you get less aggressive?" men I was dealing with were not actually the ones who were having problems with me anymore. And so now I'm on the other side of the table where I'm like, now I, I'm getting told in the opposite direction. Now you got to tone it down, you got to play nice. Well, you know what's fun about that is that, is that uh, the women are then being made to be masculine, right? Yeah. Right, that's the whole thing. Right, right. Which, like, you know, you don't, we shouldn't have to code you suddenly as masculine to, to make you have, have a voice at the table. Right. Um, so perhaps the, the answer is to tell me to shut up on one. Right, but you know, it's a room full of five guys and five women. Tell the men, we don't want to get to you right now, or listen more, or be adaptable, or just be flexible, or be nurturing. Right, and that kind of mixing of coding thing might actually help out a lot. We'll also piss off a lot of people, yeah. but that's gonna happen. Tell people when they interrupt, because I interrupt a lot, and I shouldn't. So, <laughs> like, that's it's just something that I, I feel like people, like, guys get away with it all the time. It's, it's something that, like, you know, it, it, we're trying to be more aware of it. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah it's a really, I mean, that, that's a whole conversation all by itself. Right? Um, I wish I had a better solution for that. I will never put that in a performance review. <laughs> <laughs> Was um, abrasive and confrontative. <laughs> what are some other great business books that you guys recommend reading? A good to great is phenomenal. All three Jim Collins books. Actually, the most recent one is maybe even better than Good to Great for a modern publishing company. And I can't remember what it's called, but it's the one with the blue cover with red letters on it. What's the making the stick? Now, making the stick is good. Dan and Chip Heath wrote a book on idea. What makes ideas sticky? Like what makes them rememberable to people? Rememberable. Memorable. Hmm? Dan and, Dan, uh, and Chip Heath, their brothers. Heath. Um, I also I went to a big seminar for Jeff sent me to it of uh, getting things done. Say done. So yeah, right. That's more of a, a uh, like a, a yeah productivity methodology. But I that is very highly recommended. Also, what? productivity methodology, uh, quality control. There's one. Turn the ship around. It no, was, yeah, that was. Uh, I put it on. That was written by a submarine captain, but when you talk about the um, when you were talking about how to like change the methodology, they had something in there that they changed, and they called it deliberate action. So how you said wait to give a promise. Yeah. It was ask yourself if it's the thing you want to do mm-hmm. before you do. So you take that extra moment to gather right. your thought because something in some interesting advice I have heard along those lines is if the thing you were about to promise is not something you would do right now, then maybe say that you're not going to do that. Because at some point in time, it's going to have to be the thing that you put aside all other things to do, and if you're not willing to do it right now, then maybe that will not be the case later. As an interesting yardstick, anyway, whether you want to make a promise to do any given particular thing. Right on. I'm still super interested in this question of I how do, to I not. Am. Yeah. Because Buggles, what do you think? I, I don't know the answer to that. What do you think? Anyone? Like, because I don't think I don't think that the skill set they're looking for is wrong. No, I no, absolutely not. I think the socialization of women is wrong. Yeah. Gender socialization in general. 
So if that's, that's, that's a much larger. So the last yeah. person to touch their nose must solve that. <laughs> 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 so one thing that can help or hinder this um, is the hierarchical nature of the organization. I, books I read are like you know, All Shall Rise and stuff, which are about how to run organizations to eliminate rankism, but while recognizing the fact that chain of command serves a purpose. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I as, as much as I have, I come from sort of very anarchic like roots. Um, I kind of recognize that even some companies that have prided themselves on their ability to not be non-hierarchical, like Valve, who see that they don't that their ability to expand and adapt is, is actually sometimes hurt by the fact that they they can't. Like I, I've heard from exit interviews from people who worked at Valve that like that uh, now they have so many employees that the whole non-hierarchical aspect made it very hard to compete for like, attention, to like, actually get the attention you need to like, get projects through. Well, the crowd's against management guys, for example, is a good example of like, you know, no one's the boss here. You know. But what they ended up doing was just saying, you know, I, I kind of like leaving a lot more than, than, than stamping things. And none of that was like, yeah, I don't want to be a boss or anything. So they'll do certain kinds of things as roles as a group who are on a sort of same peer level. But that's only because we need to get something done. So in order to get something done, we should have someone who's doing something. But again, they're not that, that massive. And they seem to be aggressively non-expansionist, other than just making the same game every five minutes. My problem is that I have a lot Great of... by choice is the name of that Collins book. I have a lot of, of, of background in analytics and... Um, business management, but I really don't like being a leader. So I like to help people with decisions, but I don't like to be the person who's directing and catching and, and, and checking in on people. And unfortunately, I don't have anyone who can do that besides myself. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> so, do you have a question? I do not have a question. Who was doing this? Yeah, I was just trying Good. One of the things that, that like, you were saying that solved that problem, right? Is one of the things I've been thinking about is how many a thing is that? Well, yeah, it's just solve that problem. I think that just sort of a, a something I learned. I was working. I worked at Apple for for many years, and one of the things that they uh, sort of drilled into us is assuming positive intent as part of our like mm. as part of the culture of the company. Mm. So That's whenever right. you're having an interaction with either a customer or a coworker or a manager, you're always uh, you have to assume the positive intent to the other person's actions their words, their tone of voice, whatever it is, try to assume that what they're doing is not intended to be uh, malicious against you or in some way hurtful. And so try to look past that. And so when, when, when I think about like the way that we exchange ideas, um, it might come across as abrasive to somebody if, if a woman speaks in a certain way, but if we strip away that and assume positive intent, uh, we can then step in and say, okay, it's not a gendered question, it's not at all, it's, this is the way they're delivering the information, right. and it keeps, it's like a second layer of protection between you and the and the and the delivery that you might infer, because most of these things come from inference. It's not coming from yeah. you know. It's it's what you're inferring by saying you're delivering something as a woman, right? Yeah. It's not the actual delivery, probably. It's the association that's being made. If you assume the positive intent, I think it takes the sting out. That's funny that that comes from Apple, too, because it makes so much sense of the, everything I learned about Steve Jobs in this book. Like, it seems like that's necessary for him. But, I mean, I think it's, it's like necessarily dealing with customer service on that level. Like, hundreds of angry people. <laughs> they talked about the importance of, of argument, too, and using argument and debate to test your ideas. And you, if you're trying out some crazy idea, you the other person to assume positive intent mm -hmm. in order for that to be a useful thing. Yeah. Actually, he was even like, he was the kind of guy who um, he would uh, challenge you right on the spot and he wanted to see how enthusiastic or passionate you were about it. If you just sort of went, oh, I guess I guess we won't do this thing. He's like, well, then it wasn't important to you. Right. Um, which again, though, is also assuming a certain kind of socialization, right? Mm -hmm. But if, if I, whoever, if someone said, like, if Pat said to me right now, Cam, this is the thing we're going to do. I think, we, I think we should do it. I'm like, I don't know about that. We should, we should do it. He's like, yes, we should. Here's why. Blah 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 blah. I'd argue. Steve would be like, you know what? Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you. I, I wasn't really gonna say you know, but I just wanted to hear how passionate you were about. And the second part of that is actually something that's also from the culture, which is called fearless feedback. 
which is literally in the culture, it's you can approach anybody that's your peer or your manager at any time and fearlessly respond to something. You still have to keep in mind the positive intent part, but you have to you can go up to them at any time and say, hey, you know, we had that interaction and I didn't feel so great about it, so I just need to give you a little bit of fearless feedback about that. Let's talk about it. This is how I feel. And at any time, you can walk up to like the head of the store and do this. And it's, you know, and I have to do that like my second week working there, which is really scary. But when you have like that culture, you feel capable of stepping up and saying, I'm going to challenge anything that I need to because even if I'm wrong, they're assuming the positive intent and then they're acknowledging that everybody's voice has the responsibility of challenging the ideas. Pointing out flaws in the spirit of improving. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly it. Your, the the uh, assuming good intent reminds me, if you've not read this, it's like seven minutes long, it's very short, everyone in the world should read it. It is David Foster Wallace's commencement speech at a university that I can't even remember what it was. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of writing about assumptions that, that it is wise to make about other people and how that means you ought to live your life. Um, if you do not want to read the whole thing, and I think they made him the guy who was hosting it take it down because copyright or something. You can find it around somewhere, but also somebody did a video on it if you're a video watching person. The whole text of it is in a video that is sent to the one of the supermarket? Yes, it is the one of the supermarket. I would recommend that to anyone. It's going to be a little odd because it's more of a sales focus thing, but um, anything Zig Ziglar, but you come through here, he came, uh, uh, he would come out and he would talk about a lot of stuff, and it was a lot of personal life anecdotes, but the ultimate goal is find out what the other person wants and then if you can you get it to them, because you can get what you want by getting people what they want. So if somebody wants to and they actually you know, come through and they're earnest and you believe they're going to do work, I mean these are very important things but if somebody wants to be the person that will do the art direction for your project because they have a passion for art Set them loose, yeah, right. As on. an art director, because the worst thing that happens is you have to do the art direction later, which, by the way, we're already going to have to do, right? <laughs> if you didn't let them, you, you just have to be willing to stumble through. That reminds me of the best convention attending advice that I have ever read. Derek Sivers is the guy who founded CD Baby, and he writes a super interesting blog, and he was in the music business for a long time, so like the title of the blog post is How to Attend Music Conferences or something like that. But the way he attends conferences is to like go to a social event or a networking event or whatever, and like your goal is to find out what the other people there need and then try to help them get that. And like, tell no one anything about what it is that you need. Your goal is to just help other people get their stuff done. So you like, listen to what it is that they're trying to do and take their business card and then email them back. Like, I know a guy who is an art director. I know someone who can help you with this. I was thinking about your idea and it needs more six-sided dice or like whatever. And the idea is that that comes back, right? You build your network and make it strong and other people will be inclined to help you. So like maybe, well, your head writer is constrained to one month a week. Like maybe it's just time to wait until his wife improves and instead you go out and spend all your time helping other people do their stuff. Oh, that is is pretty Well, there you go. Like my that's shade positive. is constantly coming to me for like statistics and advice. So, you know, I, I, that's my, my background is in system design. Right. Stuff, so I, I try to help people and establish a reputation as being someone who you rely on. Well, we should end on the yep. fact that Benjamin wants to help you do all your things. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for Thank coming to this. Thank you. Thank you.